Thank you, Ben. That was a perfectly chosen offertory to go with today's sermon. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you today, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4? Uh, it's also the passages in your bulletin, or 992, uh, page 992 of the Pew Bibles that are in front of you. Today is the fourth and final sermon in this little mini-series I've done since returning from the sabbatical that we've called Sabbatical Reflections. Uh, and next week, I'll begin for us our uh, Christmas uh, sermon series. And this year, I've titled that Christmas with Isaiah. And it'll kind of be looking at the prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and the expectations that relate to the coming of the Messiah. All right, so last week, if you were with us, we had a very specific focus in the sermon. We were looking at specifically and concretely the mission of the church. This week, we come to a passage that broadens us out from the particularities of last week. We've got instructions that are given to us with respect to uh, what we can call everyday life, to our common lives together. So let me uh, read this passage for us, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Timothy 4, as I do so. Remember that all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. And that's exactly what this passage is. It's part of our equipping. It's part of the instruction that is given to us for how we can live well before God in this world. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. A good thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that is set before us today and for the clarity that it gives for us. We pray that you would help us today to hear it well, to hear it afresh, and in so doing, then be able to, in a good way, in an appropriate way, apply it to our lives. Help us to those ends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I could have called this sermon today, With Thanks for the Quotidian. With thanks for the quotidian. That's a great word, uh, quotidian. I, I didn't know it until a few years ago. Uh, I learned it a few years ago. I think I was preaching on it, and then someone up in the congregation came to me and said, well, that's quotidian, and I didn't know what they were talking about, and so then I looked it up, learned what this word is, and the meaning of the word is occurring daily, ordinary, routine, commonplace, or with a slightly more negative connotation, at least in terms of how we use uh, the word now, mundane, things that happen every day. But you really sound uh, very sophisticated if you say quotidian, uh, as opposed to things that are every day or common uh, with that. In any case, during the sabbatical, in the absence of the regular ministry that I have here in the church, the quotidian 
the commonplace things of life kind of percolated up to the surface of my life and I found myself to be full of thankfulness and in the, the doing and in the enjoying of common things, of eating, of bird watching, of sky watching and water watching and sun watching and moon watching, of gardening and of housework and of renovation. And, and so in that thankfulness, I kind of saved this sermon for this particular Thanksgiving Sunday to talk about a good Thanksgiving. Paul is here telling Pastor Timothy and us what is good and how we are to thank God for that which is good. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that I spoke of the distinction between the everyday responsibilities that we have as people within the various spheres of life in which we find ourselves, the common things that we have, if you will, the mission that is everything we're supposed to do in this world. And I set that in contrast to the particular mission that is given to us as a church. And in anticipation of this week and this sermon this week, I noted for us that while the church doesn't seek to micromanage all the various areas of life that we find ourselves in, our work or our home life uh, or our eating necessarily, nevertheless, the church speaks into those areas. Why? Because the church is entrusted with the word of God and the word of God speaks into those areas. And that's exactly what we have here in this passage. I'm not going to, obviously we're talking about food in this passage, right? I'm not going to give you a menu, and the church isn't going to give you a menu to say this is what you're supposed to eat on this particular day, this is how long you're supposed to cook it, etc. We're not micromanaging anything, but nevertheless, God is interested in all of our lives because he's created all of the world as we've read and set us in it with the opportunity to glorify him. So looking at this passage, and we want to root ourselves in this passage today, consider the fact that the first two verses kind of set the stage for the very positive teaching that Paul is going to present to us on the main in verses 3 through 5. So verses 3 to 5, and we'll get to these in a few moments, are really positive, but listen to the severity and the seriousness that you find in verses 1 through 2. So, so listen to how strong these words are. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who, that's the who goes into verse 3 and describes what they are saying specifically. But when you hear that language, when you hear this teaching of demons, deceitful spirits, seared consciences. I really think that if you didn't know what comes next, and obviously you know what comes next because we've just read the passage together, but if you didn't know that, you might think, okay, well, the, the who is going to be answered by who deny that Jesus is God, who worship demons, who devour the poor, or something like that. You're expecting something that is that significant. You're expecting the worst, the extreme, to follow that but he turns his eyes immediately to the quotidian, 
There were at least two elements of the quotidian, right? Marriage and food. Those are the ones that he turns to. For the, the, these, this demonic teaching forbids marriage and abstention from various types of food. Now, I suspect that this is true for all of us, that when you think of the bad things that can happen in this world, or the bad things that could be taught in this world and could be done in this world, these don't strike us as dramatically bad. Like you could, you could write, as I said, others that would be more significantly bad. But for Paul, as he's writing these things, I think what's going on here is he sees these things that everybody experiences in life to some degree or another, marriage and food, and he sees them as indicators of very deep-rooted problems. So I think that's what's happening here. I think we're taking a couple of things that are easy to recognize, and he's trying to say, let me tell you what is underneath there. How do you get to that particular place? And, and so let me just a quick enumeration of, I think, what he is seeing as the problem here. He sees a problem of people who abstain from various foods and uh, forbid marriage, of rejecting God, of doubtfulness of and ungratefulness for God's goodness. The idea here is of some kind of a self-made religion where there's humanly defined truth, and humanly defined holiness as well. Human attempts to create purity are embedded here. And when you realize, oh, wait, 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 okay, that's what we're talking about here, then you can begin to see how serious it actually is. You might not see it by the things right on the surface there, but they point to the seriousness. Perhaps we can think of the underlying question that is in this passage is this. How do you make something or someone holy? That's the question that undergirds all of this. Verse 5 uh, says, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And we'll come back to it in just a moment and define that and, and, and take it apart a little bit more. It is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And so, so Paul is kind of setting up here, there's a way to do that. There's a way to pursue holiness, make something or someone holiness holy, and there's a way not to do that as well. The question in other language is, how do you sanctify life? Okay, sanctify, make holy. We don't usually say make holy in English. We say sanctify, exact same word, exact same meaning in them. And just to kind of set this in language that is familiar to us, remember the prayer of Jesus in John 17, where Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So sanctify them, make them holy in the truth, and your word is truth. So then, our question is how making holy works. And then the rest of this sermon now is divided into two halves. The first half is this, how not to make someone and something holy, and the second half is how to, okay? So a how not to do it and a how to do it will follow the order of our text and start with the how not to with respect to the pursuit of holiness. So verse 1 speaks of departing from the faith and of devoting yourself to deceitful spirits and demonic teaching. 
I don't think Paul is describing something here where you wake up one morning and you think to yourself, gee, instead of God's word, I'm going to go to demons and ask demons, what should I believe? And what should I eat? And what should I think with respect to marriage? I don't think Paul is thinking that kind of thing. Instead, he's describing something that is frankly far more insidious and far more dangerous than that. It's, it's when we begin to listen to voices, voices that are kind of speaking into us and telling us certain things, certain ways that you can become holy, certain practices you may have to do, that we, instead of making a leap into this demonic teaching, we kind of slide into it. It, it. it carries us into a particular place. And so in that respect, I think it's almost sometimes imperceptible and far more dangerous. Anyway, we'll try to pull out then the how-nots by looking at this, these at least first two verses here holistically. So five related interconnected departures. Five things do not pursue holiness by, okay? Number one, do not pursue holiness by rejection of what God has created. Do not pursue holiness by rejection of what God has created, for example, in the text that is before us, by forbidding marriage and by requiring abstinence from various foods. Why? Because God created them. God created those things. Now, there are any number of things a person might reject and sound holy for doing so. You know, some people might say, well, you shouldn't watch TV because that's unholy. You shouldn't shop at this particular place because that store is unholy. You shouldn't watch sports because those are unholy. You shouldn't watch certain movies. You shouldn't play cards. You shouldn't drink any alcohol. You shouldn't do any dancing. There are certain books that you shouldn't read so that you can be holy. You shouldn't have a gas-powered lawnmower or a gas-powered blower to be holy. The list can go on of things that you might reject in this effort to at least appear to be holy or seek to be holy. And the idea I think that Paul is getting at here is that this rejection approach to holiness is a dead end. If your pursuit of holiness is characterized by what you shouldn't do, then something's wrong. Now please, I'm not going to explain this in detail right now, but let's understand. Obviously, there are things forbidden by God that Christians can't participate in, right? But that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about an entire disposition of rejection of things that God has created. So don't do that. Secondly, do not pursue holiness by conscience-guided rule-setting alone or by the rule-setting that has been done by someone else's conscience. You can imagine that someone who was a teacher or who was seeking to follow after God or who was seriously trying to pursue some kind of righteousness, some kind of holiness might say to us, well, listen, my list of rejections and my list of prescriptions, okay, so rejections, what you won't do, prescriptions, what you should do instead, my list of rejections and my list of prescriptions are informed 
by my conscience. They're governed by my conscience. Now, conscience is of great importance. Paul has lots to say about conscience and its value. But there's a warning here, right? There's a warning in this text itself where it says your conscience, your conscience can be seared. Certainly the conscience of those who teach can be seared. Liars whose consciences are seared. It is branded with a hot iron, which is to say that their consciences are not functioning well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that phrase, a, a seared conscience, I tend to equate it with a license to do whatever you'd like to do, with kind of your conscience has, has become seared, and so you no longer define something as wrong, and you allow yourself to go ahead and do whatever that thing is. That's how, that's how I initially think about it, and I think there's much to that, and I think this passage comes around to that idea eventually in 1 Timothy. But here, the searing of the conscience has a different manifestation. It's not a manifestation of license to do anything. It's a hyper-attentiveness to what you shouldn't do. It, that's a seared conscience as well. You get it? So the, the one side of a seared conscience can be wrong, and the other side of it can also be wrong. It can be too hyper-attentive, or it could be too loose. Conscience must be governed by the Word of God. That's what we're talking about here. The conscience actually needs to be informed by, developed by, trained in discernment and in its role by the Word of God and by functioning within the community of the saints. I, I, I can think of a, a thousand ethical issues where groups of us have had discussions at various points to say, what do we think about this? And where my own conscience is informed by our interaction around the Word of God as a body of believers. And the idea that we're getting out here is that there's a world of difference between God's law and the rules that we might develop, humanly speaking, out of our conscience to try to become a holy person. Do not pursue holiness simply by your own rule-setting conscience. Three, do not pursue holiness by hyper-spiritualizing only the religious and by hyper-secularizing everything else. Eating isn't merely neutral. It can be done to the glory of God or not. Okay? It can be done to the glory of God or not. There is a balance here in what we're saying. Let's use a different analogy uh, or a different example, and then we'll come back to the idea of eating. There are seven days of the week that God has created. One of those days has been set apart. It has been sanctified. It has been declared to be a holy day by the Lord himself, right in the heart of the moral law one should recognize that that is a holy day. But it's easy to go overboard with that, right? There's a lot of correction that's contained in the New Testament about going overboard with that, of, of a, of a hyper-attentiveness about that day that was inappropriate for the very day itself that then began to restrict doing that which was good, 
or that which was at least merciful to other people as well. So there's warnings that are attendant there, but because this day, this Sabbath day, is sanctified, it doesn't then, therefore, mean that, well, okay, I've got the holy day here, this is Sunday, this is when I do my holy things, my holy activities here, and then I'm secularized the rest of the week. I get to do whatever I want to do on the other six days of the week. So neither a hyper-attentiveness to a holy day that is set apart by God, nor a hyper-secularization of the other six days of the week is what's called for on a biblical basis. The idea here is really the same with eating as well. Think of it this way. So we're talking about eating here, right? There's one meal that is set apart as holy, that is sanctified, that is a different type of meal than other meals. It is the Lord's Supper, right? There, there is one meal that is set apart, and it's not the same as the other meals that you eat. Now, then, there are also special times that we have a meal for Thanksgiving. They may be national traditions, they may be uh, some kind of religious feast that we still continue to celebrate, whether it's Christmas or something else, um, or they may just be special occasions within your own family where there's a particularly nice meal. And then there's the other meal, the day-to-day the, the -day meals that don't have any particular significance to them, but even within them, some of them are really nice and some of them are just, we gotta get fueled up. Uh, we've got to get something to eat, and we've got to be able uh, to regain our strength. Here's the idea. All of these are to be done to the glory of God with respect to the appropriateness of one occasion. You need to be able to prioritize. You need to be able to discern between what is the Lord's Supper and then what is common everyday eating. Don't pursue holiness by hyper-spiritualizing some activities and hyper-secularizing others. Four, don't pursue holiness by creating a God who is anti-pleasure, anti-joy, anti-enjoyment, stingy, or who you think just may have put good and delicious things in this world because he just wants to tempt you and see if you'll enjoy them or not. Don't pursue spirituality by allowing yourself to define God in that way. The rejection approach is ultimately suspicious of God and how he created this world. Now, understand this is not to somehow advocate unchecked hedonism, but it is to try to enter deeply into the goodness of God and the goodness of his creation, the goodness that we see in Genesis chapter 1 on the front of your bulletin, the goodness that we see, that we read about in Psalm 104. It is trying to enter deeply into that. Finally, last one. Don't pursue holiness by bringing old covenant foreshadowing ways of sanctification into new covenant realities. This was perhaps more true for the early church than we experience it to be. The Old Testament, though, is full of symbolic means of making things and people holy and of illustrating what was unholy. It's full of it, but they were symbolic. They were anticipatory, and we've got to understand that the new wine of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
cannot fit into the old wineskins that were in the Old Testament. If you try to do it, they will crack and they will break and you will misunderstand those particular things. They were anticipatory. The reality, the substance of holiness has now come to us and has been given to us in Jesus himself. He forgives our unholiness and he grants to us his holiness as we believe in him. That's how holiness happens. Holiness happens for us in Christ, in what he has done. We, uh, we together read through Philippians in, uh, on Wednesday evening in our Thanksgiving Eve service. And here's one of the verses from Philippians. Uh, Paul writes, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. For a moment, for the sake of this sermon, substitute holiness there. That I may be found in Christ, not having a holiness that comes from my observance of the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the holiness from God that depends on faith. How do you get it? How do you secure this righteousness, this holiness, this standing before God? It is through faith. If you're here today and you're sitting here and you're feeling dirty, and unclean and guilty, you can have freedom from that. You can have freedom from it, not by a list of things that I can tell you to do or not to do. Not because I can say, listen, when you leave from this place today, you need to go and say this prayer, and you need to say it a number of times, and then you will be holy, or you need to do these certain things, and then you will be holy. You need to not eat these foods and do eat these foods for X amount of time, and then you will be holy, or you need to take these behaviors that you might do or not do in some other context, but stop doing them for a while, and then you can come back to them, and that will make you holy, not by such things will you be made holy. They are not the way to be cleansed of the guilt, but instead by the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died that you might live. That you might live being holy in him and becoming holy in him. Being holy in him and becoming holy in him. Eat in the first place of him. Right? Bridger told us that. Eat of Christ himself. Believe in him and your sins will be cleansed. Now because that's true, we want to grow in this gifted holiness. And we want to protect it as well. So how do we do that? The rejection approach is wrong. And I trust that we understand that unchecked indulgence is not the answer. What then is the answer for holiness with the quotidian? Well, the answer that is given to us in this passage is gloriously simple. Here's the answer, and we'll just take it apart. The answer is this. Say thank you. The answer is the, well, I don't know if it's the first lesson you teach your kids, but anyway, it's one of the early lessons you're teaching kids. Say Thank you. The answer to this, the antidote to this, is a good thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the purifying agent 
that Paul gives to us. And he shows us how to do this in the three steps, the last of which is to give thanks itself. We'll come to it in just a moment. And in verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Two things in there that we're going to take apart now uh, each and look at its own. It is made, let's first of all, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What is the object of it? Uh, It is everything that is created by God. Okay, Everything that is created by God is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Prayer. In its simplest form, you've got a three-step process. Prayer, word, thanks. In its simplest form, what Paul is saying here is pray like this. You ready for it? Give us this day our daily bread. That's what's being told here. It's something is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. The prayer is that. The prayer is, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and with our daily bread, all of the things that we need for this day. Lord, our marriage is in your hand. Our jobs are in your hand. Our strength for today is in your hand. Give us this day our daily bread. Psalm 104 captures this, the spirit of this, in verse 27. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read it. It was read earlier. After going through all the lists, it says this, These all look to you to give them their food, in due season. All of the creation looks to God to give them their food. That's the posture that is being described here. Prayer is looking to the Lord for His provision and recognizing that He is ultimately the source for every good thing. Now, perhaps in our minds we go, now wait a minute, wait a minute, I went to work and earned the money for the food, came home and purchased the food, and then I or my spouse prepared the food that was there, and we ate the food in the house that I bought, and, and so what's our part in this? The, the point here is not that we don't have an instrumentality in this. Of course we do. We'll see, that's right in Scripture as well. We'll see it in a moment. The point is when you source all of those things back, whether it's the physical strength or the intellectual ability that God has given to you for the work that he has given to you, that comes from God. That's a gift from God. The job that you have, that's a gift from God. Your ability to earn that income, to go and purchase that food, is, in fact, a gift from God. He is the ultimate source of this, and that's what we're saying in prayer. Second, it's made holy by the word. Made holy by the word. Now, what does that mean? That does not mean that on your serving tray you have to have a Bible verse. It doesn't mean that. Now, if your serving tray has a Bible verse on it, I'm glad for you. Very, very good. That, that, this, the point isn't too nice, but that's not what it's saying here. It's saying that we have to know the truth about this world. We have to know the truth about marriage and about food, right? In verse 3, it said that this is to be received by those who believe and know the truth. When it's set apart by the word, the word is sanctifying us, making us holy in that which is true, because the word is telling us that which is true. So, what then is the truth from the word of God? Here's the truth, summarized in as short a form as you can say it. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. That's the text. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. 
Genesis 1 tells us that. Psalm 104 told us that. Psalm 104, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, right? Okay, so man's got work to do, cultivate the plants. God is the one who has provided it. Then he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. That's what the Word of God says. Now, of course, of course, all of those things can be abused. Marriage can be abused. Food can be abused. Alcohol can be abused. Any of the things that God has created can be abused. But that does not change this fact. It does not change its essence. It does not change its purpose. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. How do you know that's true? The Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. It's sanctified by the Word, and the Word is truth. And then, of course, the third and final aspect of sanctifying the quotidian is actually simply taking the time to say thank you, to be thankful for it. Verse 3, God created these to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The point is that we not take our food, our marriages, our houses, our housework, our pets, our crafts, our sports, our cars, our clothes, our jobs, or anything else for granted. That's the point. None of those things do we take for granted. We are debtors to the mercy, to the goodness, the kindness, and the grace of God for everything that he gives to us. We don't deserve it, but he has given it to us, and so we say thank you. And if you need an example or two, here's your example. Jesus then took loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. That was before 5,000. Jesus was thankful. He was thankful for the food that God had created, for the food that God had provided. He was dependent upon the Father. He was the Word of God speaking to them the very truth of the Word about the world, about himself, and about themselves as well. That was before 5,000. Here's Jesus before 12. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. If Jesus prayed and gave thanks... And that's in the word of God for us. That's your job to apply this week. To apply that to the commonplace, to the everyday, to the quotidian in your life. And most of all, remember this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord.
Great God in heaven, you have put your abundance upon us in ways that are nearly unimaginable for most of the history of this world in the things that we enjoy, even, even just in the foods that we enjoy, that kings and queens of ages past could never have enjoyed. And Lord, all other things come from gifts, come as a gift from your hand. We thank you most of all for our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that because all things are created by him, through him, and for him, that we would see all things as part of the bounty of Christ, a part of that which comes from Christ. We give you our thanks and our praise in his name. Amen.